Please open your Bibles to Matthew 25:14. Once again, that's Matthew 25:14. Our passage for this morning is the parable of the talents. Let's begin by reading it together. As you know, Jesus is telling his disciples how to prepare for the imminent coming of the day of the Lord and with it the rapture. When he says this, Matthew 25:14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." This is now our third week looking at the parable of the talents together. And if you've been with us for the first two messages, then you already know that my approach up to this point has been to look at this parable from, parable from a salvation perspective. What I mean by that is that as I've gotten to the application of this parable, I've asked you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I've asked you to use this parable to reflect on whether or not you're a Christian. In short... I've asked you to consider whether or not you are truly saved. I've said that seems to be the way this parable is employed. The disciples have asked Jesus about the timing of His coming and of the day of the Lord at the end of the age, way back at the beginning of Matthew 24. The idea seems to be that they want to be ready for that final day of judgment. As Jesus has proceeded through His answer to that question, He's finally gotten to the event that we know of today as the rapture. And when He delivers the parable of the talents, He's essentially explaining the criteria by which one disciple will be taken with him and spared the final expression of God's wrath and who will be abandoned in judgment. In short, this is a parable describing who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. We know this from the reward and the punishment that are distributed in this parable. And the point, it would seem, is to give the disciple or potential disciple some kind of standard, some kind of basis by which to, 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 to determine whether or not they are, in fact, ready for the Lord's return. 
I've said that there are three such guidelines that we can discover in this parable. We've talked about the first two already. First, I've said that admission to the kingdom will be determined by faithfulness, not results. In other words, what we see with the first two slaves in this parable is that even though they produce different results, they both receive the same reward, which is to enter the joy of their master. The reason for this, of course, is because there is only one way that anyone can enter into heaven and stand before God, and that's by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to criteria, the issue isn't how much a person obeys, per se, or how much they produce. They can be a five-talent slave or a two-talent slave. They still get into heaven. The reason being, they enter not on the basis of their righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. They both enter in equally because they both enter in by the same merit. So when it comes to admission criteria, results are not the issue. But, and this can't be missed, but there is still a measure of some kind of external criteria that Jesus is using as a standard. He's looking looking at how a person performs here. This is why I've said it depends on faithfulness and not merely faith thus far. The master in this parable praises the two two slaves that enter in, not just on their faith, but their faithfulness. They are responsible to do something with the talents that he gave them. And this led us to the second guideline in this parable, which is concerned with defining faithfulness. And what we've seen is that according to this parable, faithfulness is defined by action, not inaction. The third slave in this parable, the one that's condemned to hell, at the end of it, he's so petrified by the master's return that he assumes that the most responsible thing he can do is play defense. Just hold on to his talent until the master's return and he'll be fine. I explained in our last look at this passage that this seems to be a reference to those who define righteousness negatively by what they don't do, rather than positively by what they do which is the way Jesus has defined righteousness throughout this gospel. In other words, the talents in this parable are simply a stand-in for the idea of stewardship and potential reward. There are some people, like the Pharisees, who interpret righteousness by what God doesn't want them to do. They think that God, what God wants from them is inaction. Jesus says that they are in for a rude awakening on the day of judgment because far from being pleased by their inaction, the master, who in this instance stands for Jesus, will actually be angered by it. What God expects is action. He defines righteousness offensively by the willful, intentional, proactive expressions of worship and love that we see exhibited in the example of the first two slaves. They are the ones who will be praised at Jesus' return. They are the ones who will enter into the joy of their master, not the lazy, evil third slave in the parable. Based on these two guidelines, I've asked you to reflect not on whether or not you've produced enough works, but whether you've produced the right kind of works. Jesus has already indicated earlier in the Gospel, but then again, as recently as the parable of the ten virgins, that there will be some people watching for His return. Some people who will even in some way desire to enter into the kingdom who will be shut out. What he's doing here is establishing a criteria for your benefit, for you to have an objective standard by which you can know whether or not you are ready for his imminent arrival. That criteria, though, is not established by the quantity of your obedience, but by its quality. It's not a matter of how many works you have. But of what kind? Supposing you have the right kind in any amount, you can be confident you'll be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. 
This morning we get into the third guideline. And this guideline is important because it explains why Jesus can point to this kind of external criteria. After all, the Apostle Paul has said quite explicitly that salvation is by grace through faith and not by the works of the law, lest any man should boast. How then can Jesus imply here that there is some type of external criteria we can use to know whether or not we're in the faith? Doesn't that teach us to look to our works as the basis of our salvation? Doesn't that cause us to even find assurance, not in the righteousness of Christ, but in our own righteousness? The third guideline resolves this apparent conflict. It shows us how it is that Scripture can say both that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and at the same time that works can still serve as an evidence or sign of a person's salvation. However, that being said, I want to take a different approach here this morning. Again, the purpose of this parable is to provide a criteria by which you can determine whether or not you're in the faith. And that's how I've been pressing at home for a couple of weeks now. But I would assume that most of you are in the faith. I would assume that most, if not all of you, who voluntarily show up here from week to week to learn about the Bible, do so because you're a Christian. And so the way I want to approach this passage this morning is by exploring what this third guideline reveals to us about how we grow in the faith. If you remember, I said at the conclusion of our second guideline, I asked you, you know, even if you're in the faith, I said, still ask yourself, where can I grow in the type of righteousness that Jesus demands here? Hopefully you've asked yourself that question, and you've identified where you fall short. After all, none of us love perfectly. None of us practice the kind of proactive, sacrificial love that Jesus defines as righteousness perfectly. We're all prone to fall into the merely uh, defensive definition of righteousness. So where do you need to improve? That's how I ended our last message on this parable. Today I want us to look at this third guideline from the perspective of how you will improve, how you will grow. Suppose someone were to ask you after today's service, How have you grown as a Christian in the past year? What would you say? What if they were to expand that time frame out to include the past five years? Would you have anything specific you could offer them? Anything concrete? Or have you hit a kind of plateau? You come to church and you hear sermons. Perhaps you even spend time reading the scripture at home, but you don't seem to be able to measure any discernible progress in the faith, if you even know what that would look like. It would seem to me that sanctification is a woefully neglected topic in the church today. I think this is probably due in part to the way that churches measure measure success. All the emphasis on the church today is on church growth. It's on increasing annual attendance and swelling church membership roles. And to some degree this is good, right? You've heard me often say that the purpose of the church is worship and its present mission is evangelism. That is the reason why you've all been left here on earth in our Savior's absence to fulfill the Great Commission, to expand the influence of His reign through the proclamation of the Gospel. In this sense, I think it's fairly accurate to say that a church that is not baptizing is not healthy. I mean, if the parable of the talents or of the minus tell us anything, it's that God expects us to adopt, He does not expect us to adopt a bunker mentality. He wants us to, to be vigorously active and engaged for the magnification of His glory. And that most certainly includes the work of evangelism. 
However, that being said, numerical growth has been so inextricably intertwined with the definition of health and success of a church that it has become increasingly the only measure by which a church or church members assess its health. The result of this has been a focus on the first half of the Great Commission to the exclusion of the second half. You remember those instructions, right? Jesus told the disciples that He wanted them to make disciples of all the nations. That's what the Great Commission is about. It's about discipleship. And then He explains what He means by that, by saying, He expects them to do this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the first half of the Great Commission. Evangelism, conversion. And then He continues, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the second half. We're not just to make converts. We're to see that they grow in righteousness. They are to be sanctified. Well, in my own experience, and that's all I'm, I'm speaking of here from, from, uh, at the moment, from my own, my own experience, this is, it's just that what I've happened to observe broadly in my, my many years as a Christian, there's a great attention paid to the first half of the commission with a great neglect to the second. Churches will structure their entire worship service, for instance, around first attracting and then second, converting outsiders. All the while, those Christians who have come to the faith wither on the vine for years without any clear or specific instruction about what they are to do now that they've come to Christ. The result of this has been that not only do many Christians misunderstand the very definition of righteousness, never getting beyond the negative expression possessed by the third slave in this parable, but on top of that, they've never been given the tools to actually grow in said righteousness. When it comes to sanctification, the Scripture describes a two-step process in which the disciples' former ways of thinking are first stripped down and tossed away as rubbish before then being replaced by the new way of thinking that is found in Christ. This is how the inner transformation that Jesus demands works practically. It happens through the renewal of the mind as old, idolatrous thoughts are identified, discarded, and then replaced with the truth of Scripture. Not only is the latter part of this process very often neglected, but even when it is not, it is still not often accompanied by the removal of old system of thought. Scriptural concepts are simply slapped on top of old error like fresh wallpaper on top of moldering drywall. The most that's ever said about sanctification is stop doing bad, accompanied by a list of items that fall under that category, and then it's just a series of delightfully informative and uplifting messages after that. The result, and again, this is just speaking from experience, but the result is that many Christians quickly stagnate in their growth. There's this initial revolution that occurs in their life as a natural consequence of their faith in Christ, but then shortly after that, they stop, they plateau. That's not because their faith isn't real, it's because they haven't been instructed, or they've, at the very least, been poorly instructed. Again, they may be serious in their faith, but the most they have ever been told is that righteousness means not doing certain things. So, where are they to grow then, after they've done that? After they've stopped doing those things? I think if you were to ask such individuals why they still go to church, they wouldn't be able to entirely tell you. They don't feel like they're really learning anything, and it's because... By the very way righteousness has been defined for them, their growth has been capped. Others may be seeking to grow somehow, but again, because that's never been defined for them, they take, up, take it up for themselves to define what growth is, and they, they reach for the easiest discernible measure of growth, and that's probably knowledge. They see their knowledge increasing, and so they assume this means they must be growing. If you ask them why they show up to church on Sunday, that's what they would say. They show up in order to be instructed to receive more knowledge. 
And of course, this isn't, this isn't to slam the importance of knowledge. After all, I just said that growth occurs through the, the renewing of the mind. But at the same time, we should not equate increased knowledge with growth. As Paul himself said, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You define righteousness the way Jesus defines it, and it becomes apparent. Knowledge is not the same thing as growth. It is what we acquire in order to grow, because growth is defined by the extent to which we worship and love. So I want you to ask yourself one more time, before we really get going here, ask yourself one more time, according to the way that Jesus defines righteousness, how have you grown in the past year? Or in the past five? If you've not grown at all, ask yourself why not? Or if you have grown, perhaps, but perhaps not as you ought, or perhaps not in some areas where perhaps you should have grown, ask yourself again, why not? And then I'd like you to consider this morning that perhaps, perhaps the reason is because you've not been employing the third guideline discovered here in this parable. Again, this third guideline, it explains why Jesus can point to external criteria when describing who will be taken at the rapture and who will be left. What this means is that just as it explains the root of the third slave's disobedience in contrast to the first two slaves' obedience, it also explains for us what will be the root of our transformation? And not only the kind of transformation that occurs when we first believe, but the transformation that occurs as we continue to believe. What is this third guideline? It is this. Action is driven by grace, not fear. Action is driven by grace, not fear. So note the progression here. Guideline one, I said that admission to the kingdom is determined by faithfulness not results. So then, what is faithfulness? We saw in guideline number two, faithfulness is defined by action, not inaction. Well, what then drives this action? What produces it? The answer is in guideline number three. Action is driven by grace, not fear. This is how Paul can say that salvation is by grace through faith. And yet Jesus can repeatedly point to a person's action as the basis by which their admission to heaven will be determined. It's not because there is any merit to their actions. It's because the base of this qualitatively different kind of obedience is this steadfast confidence in the grace of God. In other words, it is faith that produces works and faith that is rooted in a confidence in the grace of God in particular. Or to put it yet another way, without the kind of steadfast confidence in the grace of God, as it is revealed in the gospel, it is impossible, it is impossible to produce the sort of obedience exhibited in the first two slaves. Nor is it possible to have such faith without the requisite obedience. The two concepts are inextricably linked. One cannot obey without confidence in the goodness and love of God, nor will one remain in a state of disobedience while such confidence is active in their life. In the words of 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is where all our love and worship begins. It begins not with our love for God, but with His love for us. 
It is grace that drives the obedience that Jesus demands. And so if you want to see continual growth in Christ, this is where you must keep yourself firmly rooted in a state of constant awareness of the great grace of God towards you. This point is highlighted once again by the third slave in this parable. The reason for his defensive approach is discovered in verses 24 and 25, when upon giving an account for his inaction, he states, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent. Here you have what is yours. It was abject fear that drove his inaction. In other words, it wasn't as if he was just ignoring the coming of the Master. Quite the contrary, he was living in light of his return. But rather than anticipating his return, this slave dreaded it. That dread is not only the driving force behind the choices he makes in this parable, but it speaks volumes about what this slave believes about his Master. The two concepts are intertwined. It is because this slave fears his master that he does not act. Therefore, his works, or rather his lack thereof, is indicative of what he believes. And what he believes is that his master is not gracious. What I want to show you with the time we have remaining is why this is so. I want to show you the connection between grace and the positive expressions of righteousness that we've covered under guideline number two. And I want to do this, hopefully, in order to convince you that if you want to grow in righteousness, then you must be rooted in a constant meditation upon the grace of God. It is only by reflecting upon grace that the inner motives that will drive you to true obedience can be compelled. How then does grace drive action? Here are three reasons, all of which are illustrated in this parable. Reason number one, only grace produces an attitude of stewardship instead of entitlement. Let me say that one more time. Only grace produces an attitude of stewardship instead of entitlement. We've seen throughout this gospel that Jesus doesn't just demand a portion of a disciple's life or a partial devotion. No, he demands the whole life. He wants all of their being. As he told his disciples back in Matthew 16, the disciple who does not deny himself, take up his cross and follow him, is not worthy of him. Even the greatest command, according to Jesus, requires that the disciple worship God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. In short, Jesus explains that God demands everything. The whole disciple, complete devotion. And he requires this absolute devotion, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but without hesitation. It's to be both a willing and a joyful submission. Apart from such devotion, it is not worship. It's mere hypocrisy. Such devotion is impossible to give, apart from a keen awareness of the grace of God. It's impossible to give without a keen awareness of the grace of God. It is possible to yield one's life apart from a perception of God's grace, but not joyfully, not willingly. Apart from an awareness of God's grace, any demands that He would make upon our lives would be an intrusion. He would be, in our minds, appropriating territory that does not rightly belong to Him. 
This is how many unbelievers view God's commands. They see it as a kind of annexation of sovereign lands that should not be required that, that should not be required to swear allegiance to him. Just this week I saw someone online respond to the gospel, a presentation of the gospel by saying back, "So you're telling me that this Jesus guy has the power to make us happy." But instead of doing that, he threatens to punish anyone who doesn't worship him. Sounds to me like he's kind of a jerk. When I saw that, I immediately thought to myself, this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's assuming that Jesus does not already possess a right to his worship. He's assuming that he's his own independent entity, that his time, his talents, and energies are his own to be used for his own purposes, and that rather than demanding his allegiance, Jesus should be helping him achieve his goals. He has it completely backwards. No wonder he thinks God is a jerk. He thinks God is trying to seize something that doesn't already belong to him, mainly this guy's devotion and worship. It is grace that reminds us that we are not our own, that we do not have a right to order our lives however we see fit, that we are, in essence, playing with house money, and that as such, we are actually rightly obligated to devote all of our being to the one who first created us, then sustained us, and now redeems us. Grace reminds us that everything we have is already God's. And this in turn helps us to yield everything we have to Him joyfully and in thankfulness for the tremendous kindness that He has shown us. Again, the one who does not comprehend grace does not believe God to be kind. In their mind, His commands are the demands of an egotistical despot, not a benevolent and gracious king. What's notable about the third slave is the approach he takes toward his master. As he explains why he did not invest the talent, he not only flatly calls the master a, quote, hard man, indicating his belief in the master's severity, but he then goes on to explain what he means by saying that his master reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he scatters no seed. When the master then uses the same charge against the slave to explain why he ought to have at least taken his talent and invested it with the bankers, he's not acquiescing to the slave's judgment. He's simply using the slave's own words against him. Even if such were true, then that slave ought to have at least done something with the talent, even by his own admission. What this slave reveals with this subtle charge against the master is that he believes that anything he produced with this talent was rightfully His. It is the fruit of His labor. It is His produce. The Master, by taking the product of the slave's investment, is, quote, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. This mindset is even highlighted in verse 25 when He tells the Master, Here, have what is yours. He apparently at no point senses any ownership of the talent that he's been, that's been entrusted to him. He distances himself from the investment, sees it as strictly belonging to the master, and any profit that would have been earned off the talent as rightfully belonging to himself. You can see, therefore, why this slave would be so reluctant. In short, he does not like his master. And because he does not like his master, nor does he see how such effort would benefit himself, then he cannot see why he should risk so much in investing this talent only to face the wrath of his master. And this is the point that the master brings out. It's not simply fear 
that is driving his slave, because if it was fear alone that was the issue, then at the very least, this slave would have invested the talent in order to appease the master, since by his own admission, the master is a hard man who reaps where he does not sow. But that slave didn't do this. Why not? Because this fear of the master has actually produced a kind of begrudging heart towards him. This is what the master exposes by calling this slave wicked and slothful in verse 26. There's more than just fear at work here. The fact of the matter is that this slave can't be bothered to do something for the benefit of his master. And this fear would explain why he could not be bothered to do it. fact is, he does not like the master. So he will go as far as he believes in order to avoid punishment from the master, but no further. He refuses to do anything of positive consequence for his master, not simply because he fears the master, but because he can't see the benefit in it. The fact of the matter, once again, is that the slave does not like the master. In his explanation about fear, all that does is explain why this is so. He does not like the master because he believes him to be very cruel. What this slave is obviously missing when he says all of this is that the talent that was given to him from which he would produce the interest, was not his own. You'll remember that the talent is something equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. Listen, this slave did not produce that on his own. He couldn't produce that kind of starting capital on his own. It comes from the abundance of the master's wealth. So supposing this slave did use it and then produce something from it, Where does the credit still belong? It still belongs back to the master who entrusted to him the talent from which he could make so much interest, right? The truth of the matter is that anything this slave could produce could only actually be produced because of what the master has entrusted to him, right? The third slave misses the point. And so rather than viewing the stewardship of the talent as a great privilege and of any money earned from it as rightly belonging to the master, since it is earned from the master's capital... He sees the talent and its profit rather as an entitlement. The money that he earns from the talent should be rightfully his. And the only reason it's not is because the master is a severe and merciless ruler. This is why the slave is truly reluctant to invest the money. He believes that it should rightly bring some benefit to him personally. And since the severity of the master means that it won't, again, he can't can't see why he should be bothered with it. So he merely plays it safe. He tries to do just enough to not get punished. And then return the talent, no worse for the wear, once the master comes back. The other two slaves apparently don't have this attitude. If you note, they don't make any kind of distinction between the master's investment and the profit that they earn. Rather, they simply understand that as slaves, they must do work for the master. Their labor and their profit is his right. There's no complaint about whose money the prophet is. There doesn't seem to be an expectation of reward, necessarily. They're simply doing what they believe they ought to do. You see the contrast here, don't you? The third slave has an attitude of entitlement to his time and energy that hardens him against doing anything that might benefit his master. He's playing defense because, in a sense, he believes there is something of his own to preserve from the master's judgment. 
The other two don't see it this way. They see the talent entrusted to them as a privilege, as a tremendous responsibility. And so they joyfully use what has been given to them for the benefit of their master. Not because they think that anything is owed to them for their labor, but because they believe their labor and the fruits of it are already owed to their master. Again, they're on offense. Because they're playing with house money. Whereas the, first, the third slave is on defense because he thinks he has something to lose by serving the master. Listen, if you're going to serve Christ in the way that he demands, you will not get there by having the attitude of the third slave. There are moments where service to Christ, where laboring for his glory, is going to take something from you. And Jesus has elaborated on that cost in this gospel. It could cost you friends and family. It could cost you money. It will most certainly cost you your life. The only way that you're going to engage in that work with the kind of joy that Jesus also demands is if you already see your life as forfeit when you begin. In other words, if you think your life, your time, your talents, your energy, etc. are all your own, that they all belong to you first, then yes, it's going to be a great burden for you to serve Jesus. Just like the third slave, you're going to see that as Jesus reaping where he has not sown and gathering where he has scattered no seed. And that's going to produce a very reluctant kind of obedience. But if, on the other hand, you see all these things first as an expression of grace, because they are first sourced in God and then redeemed by Christ, then you'll see such service to Christ with these things, not as a loss, because they don't belong to you. You aren't owed them. Rather, you'll see the mere possession of these things, which rightfully belong to Christ, as a great privilege and responsibility to be used for His glory. So when Christ calls you to serve a spouse, for instance, who doesn't love you, or when he asks you to forgo the hours at work that could earn you the next promotion, to use those hours instead to advance his kingdom by serving your neighbor, you won't see that as a loss of something that rightly belongs to you. You'll see it rather as giving back to the master what is already his by right. And you'll be able, you'll be able to do so with joy and thankfulness for all he's entrusted to you. This is where the kind of love and sacrifice demanded by Jesus begins. It starts with a keen understanding of grace, which reminds you that you're not entitled to any of the blessings that you possess in your life, but rather that those, ble- those blessings already belong to Christ, and they've merely been entrusted to you for His glory. So if you want to grow in the righteousness that Jesus demands, this is where you have to be rooted. You have to be rooted in an understanding of His grace. So once again, reason number one, why action is driven by grace Only grace produces an attitude of stewardship instead of entitlement. Let's look now at reason number two. The second reason why action is driven by grace and not fear is this. Only grace encourages the confidence to take risks. I don't think this one is probably too hard to understand, and I really want to spend some time on our third point because I think that one is important. So I'm going to be brief on this one. Let me state it one more time. Only grace encourages the confidence to take risks. One of the things that's notable about Christ's reframing of the law, particularly as it relates to the establishment of the new covenant, is that it often thrusts the disciple into a gray area where it's not always easy to discern the best course of action. For instance, in Galatians 5, Paul tells his readers that they have been freed from the constrictions of the Mosaic law 
But he then, he then clarifies by explaining that such freedom is not a license to sin. Rather, they are to fulfill the purpose of the law by using that freedom to love and serve one another. Paul, of course, gives an example of what this looks like in 1 Corinthians 10 when he speaks of the permissibility of going to dine with unbelievers, even when the food at the meal has been sacrificed to idols. This is the type of stuff that was never permitted under the law. Under the law, there were strict codes of cleanness and uncleanness that separated the Jew from the Gentile. In the New Covenant, those restrictions pass away, and not to promote idolatry, but to call people out of it. The problem, though, is that with such expressions of love, one runs the risk of garbling the gospel, which was the sort of thing that Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians 10. Or it's possible that one could cause a fellow believer to stumble or perhaps to even earn a reputation among outsiders as a libertine. These are all dangers that the Scripture not only warns about, but which we see experienced by Jesus and the apostles firsthand. Jesus, for example, was, was labeled a glutton and a drunkard because he had the audacity of associating with tax collectors and sinners. Paul, for his part, was accused of teaching Jews to forsake the Mosaic Law. This is what was going to happen when you, you try to actively love people. Things are going to occasionally get messy when you go on the offensive. Actions are going to be misunderstood. You may even make some bad decisions as you take risks and try to navigate the murky area between the light and the darkness. And those who play it safe by defining righteousness negatively and then have nothing to do with sinners as a result, they'll accuse you of misconduct, just like the Pharisees did with Jesus. Even when your hands are clean, they'll label you guilty by association and run through a list of all the ways that you have besmirched God's name by making the attempt. If you're a believer with a sensitive conscience, how do you continue to move forward in that situation? How do you remain on the offensive when the specter of misconduct is being constantly conjured up by your accusers? You certainly don't mean to do anything wrong, but you understand that you just can't sit on the sideline. You're supposed to advance into enemy territory and liberate captives from Satan's domain of darkness. You have to be active. You have to be engaged. You can't just play it safe. What keeps you moving forward then? And again, it is the grace of God. Note here once again this third slave's mindset. What freezes him? What gets him to the point where he refuses to put his master's money at risk? Is it not his fear, once again? He is so horrified by the master and what he perceived to be his severity that he refuses to risk the talent. Now again, if his accusations about the master were true, then he still should have put the money in a bank so that it might have gained interest. But the fact is, he's so absolutely petrified by the master's wrath that all he can think about is the severity with which he'll be treated if he loses that talent. And so rather than do anything with it, he goes and finds a nice secluded piece of dirt and buries it in the ground until his master's return. Listen, this is not faith. This is not faith. Faith is exhibited in the lives of the first two slaves who in contrast to the third slave, apparently have such an implicit trust in the master's goodness that they have absolutely no qualms about putting the talents entrusted to them at risk. After all, if the third slave, right, if he refused to act out of fear, then surely we're to conclude that these slaves were emboldened to act by a confident in their master's goodness, aren't we? Could they have lost the talent 
when they invested it? We have to conclude from the third slave that this was certainly possible, don't we? However, whereas the third slave acted out of self-preservation and fear at this thought, these slaves not only understood that it was their duty to put the talent at risk, that they were, were required to do it, but they apparently had enough confidence that the master would forgive them of their shortcomings should they fail. Since, after all, they were only being faithful to their duties when they invested the talent, they were so confident in that that they were willing to do it anyways. If you've not grown in the active expressions of righteousness demanded by Jesus, if there's a fruitlessness to your ministry, I'd urge you to consider that perhaps the reason is that you're not rooted in the grace of God, but only in the fear of God. Of course, this is not to denigrate the fear of the Lord or to advocate for a sloppy type of ministry. I mean, whatever we're to say about the relationship between faithfulness and action, I certainly don't think we can say that faithfulness is in any way marked by an apathy toward the Master's instructions. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you should constantly assess the type of foundation upon which you build. But that being said, if you allow that fear to paralyze you into inaction and to constantly quarantining yourself off from others out of fear that perhaps you'll make the wrong decision or perhaps your intentions will be misunderstood, then you're not trusting in the grace of God. And you will be unfruitful. You have to trust the fact. Listen, let me say this very clearly. You have to trust the fact that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. That He is able to overcome your weaknesses so long as you are active for His name. See, this is the problem with the third slave. Once again, he sees the prophet as the product of his labor. He completely misses the master's role in it. This is how those who are inactive think. They believe that success or failure depends entirely upon their actions, that whatever is produced is produced as a result of their effort. They fail to take into account the invisible hand of God in their work. They fail to understand that God, in fact, glorifies Himself as He works through weak and imperfect vessels. That is through this, in fact, that His power is made perfect. The first two slaves seem to understand this point. The third slave, however, does not. That is why they are fruitful, and he is not. So again, if you're not fruitful, perhaps it is because of an inordinate fear of man. Perhaps that's why. I think that's where most people probably live. They fear man too much. But at least consider that it may also be because of an an inordinate fear of God as well. One that is absent of a confidence in His grace. Let's turn now to the third reason why action is driven by grace rather than fear. We've seen reason number one is because only grace produces an attitude of stewardship rather than entitlement. Reason number two, only grace encourages the confidence to take risks. And now number three, only grace creates the desire for heavenly reward. Only grace creates the the desire for heavenly reward. Up to this point, we haven't talked a whole lot about the kind of reward that is distributed to the first two servants. All I've said is that they're both told the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The primary emphasis in that reward, in contrast to the third slave, is entrance into heaven. However, there's another element to reward here that we've not explored 
at least not on Sunday morning. We've talked about it some on Sunday night. There's a kind of distinction that is made even between the first and second servant. That comes out in verse 28. When the third slave is ordered to give his talent to the five-talent slave. And then the principle behind that action is stated in verse 29 like this. Jesus says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I want to come back to that principle in a moment. It's, it's apparently important. And the reason why I say it's important is because Jesus repeats that statement in various contexts with different applications at least three different times in his ministry. What I want to do right now is point out that there is a distinction that's made, even beyond the fact that both the first and the second slave get to enter into the joy of their master. So what's that distinction about? The short answer seems to be authority. Authority. The parallel to the parable of the talents is the parable of the minus. You remember the parable of the minus, right? I pointed out a couple weeks ago that Jesus delivers the parable of the minus just a few days before the parable of the talents. But there are some elements that he changes in the telling of the two parables. One key change is the matter of reward. Here the reward is stated along the lines of entering the joy of the master. And both the first and the second slave receive that reward. In the parable of the minus, both the first and the second slave are entrusted with the same amount. They each receive one mina. The first slave turns his mina into ten. The second slave into five. As a reward, the master then places the first slave in charge of ten cities in his kingdom. The second slave, five cities. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how each man will be rewarded according to what he has produced here on earth. That reward is consistently portrayed as a particular type of authority. For example, in Matthew 19, Jesus tells the disciples that they will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel for their willingness to follow him. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they will one day sit in authority over and judge angels. In Revelation 20, the souls of those who have been beheaded are raised, and it's said that they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Just authority, authority, authority. That always seems to be the context whenever the subject of rewards comes up. So what does that mean? If faithfulness is then rewarded, does that, I mean, does that mean that the faithfulness is rewarded with the ability to boss people around in heaven? Well, it would seem to be far from it. Jesus has already told his disciples, when James and John asked for the two highest places of authority in his kingdom, that the greatest among them is the one who serves. That's how he answers this request for the two best spots. He says, he says first, I can't award that to you. And then he begins speaking to the disciples about the one, how the one who is greatest is the one who serves. The implication sure seems to be that the greatest servants will be the ones who receive those positions of authority. See, our problem is that we so completely misunderstand authority. We've so perverted its true purpose that we actually think it's given for the exact opposite reason that God distributes it. We use authority to serve ourselves. God says authority is given to serve others. That's how God himself uses his authority. He blesses his creation with it. Again, we've got it completely backwards. Now you go back to what Jesus says about how to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. You put that in the context of rewards. And it would seem that the idea is that the one who serves will be rewarded with a greater capacity to serve. They will receive more authority 
which they can then use to serve others. The one who does not serve, he may still receive eternal life, but with a diminished capacity to serve others. This principle actually comes up in John 15, where Jesus talks about how important it is that the disciples bear fruit. Contextually, the reference to bearing fruit has to do with the commandment that Jesus is delivering to the disciples that they love one another. And it's within that context that Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that is the, he says he, that is the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he, again, that's the Father, uh, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Listen, that's just another way of saying that to the one who has, more will be given, and to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The one who loves, Jesus says, will be pruned, that he may love more. And the one who does not love, meanwhile, they will be taken away. Now, what's notable in this is that as Jesus is giving this command, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he's saying that the the disciples, as they love, will be given an even greater capacity to love. And he's saying that as they receive this greater capacity to love, their joy will be made full. That's why he's speaking these things to them, so that their joy may be made full. How does that work? I mean, think about this. Jesus is saying that the more selfless you are, the greater joy you will find. And that the one who practices that selflessness, he will be rewarded with divine pruning so that he may be even more selfless and have even greater joy. How does that work? I mean, that seems completely backwards, doesn't it? How does one receive more joy by putting oneself last? I'll tell you how it works. As you learn to put yourself last, Do you know what you're forced to give up? You're forced to give up your idolatry. You're forced to worship the creation less and to depend on God more. In other words, you learn how to worship as you serve. You see, our problem is that we think that sin makes us happy. Like, we really believe that. But it doesn't. It brings us sorrow. It promises joy, but it delivers sorrow. It's only when we turn away from sin and live in submission to God, depending on Him, which happens as we give ourselves, that we discover true joy. This is why Jesus promises to prune the one who bears fruit, that He might bear more fruit, and then says that He has spoken these things in order to make their joy full. The only way a person can serve others is by putting to death the desires of their flesh, casting off idols, and seeking to find their contentment in God alone. The one who serves, in other words, is going to be sanctified. And they're going to have more and more of their idols stripped away, and they will find more and more of their contentedness in God. And the product of that is that they will find true, lasting joy. Because their joy will have become centered on the right object. This is how the ability to give of oneself more is actually a reward in and of itself. It comes with a greater capacity to find joy in God. That's the reward that Jesus promises to His disciples. And if you want to see it on full display, go and read what Paul has to say in Philippians 4 as he sits in jail rejoicing. That is the product of a man who has suffered much in service to others and has derived the benefit of being well pruned. Again, that's the reward that Jesus offers. 
But here's the thing. There's, there's nothing attractive. There's nothing attractive about that reward if you don't believe in the grace of God. You come back to the parable of the talents. And once again, what is the primary reward that the master offers the first two slaves? He tells them, enter into the joy of your master. That's their main reward. Now tell me, do you think the third slave would have seen that as a reward? Consider what he believes about the master. He says that he's a hard man, that essentially he steals from those who work for him. Do you think he would consider fellowship with this master a joy? Absolutely not. Fear by itself does not produce the kind of love that is necessary to make the reward that God offers a true reward. Fellowship is not a reward if that fellowship is with someone that you're terrified of. It is only grace that makes such a communion a reward. Therefore, it is only grace that can motivate someone to pursue the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands when it costs so much. Again, there's a real cost to the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands. It's hard to love in the way that He loves. And I just don't, I don't just mean that in the sense that it requires you to kill the flesh. It's hard in that way, in and of itself, because it requires you to kill the flesh. But even apart from sin, there is suffering in that kind of love. Just ask Jesus, right? He possessed no sin, and yet He suffered greatly in the way that He loved others. The only way you're going to find the strength to make that kind of sacrifice is if you think there's a superior reward waiting on the other side of it. Well, the reward that God offers is Himself. Is that enough for you? If not, then it may be because you're rooted only in the fear of God and not enough in His grace. You're failing to comprehend the greatness of His glory and love. So then, can you start to see why grace is such an important concept to keep in mind if you're going to perform the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands? Hopefully you can understand now why Jesus points to the outside when describing the criteria he'll use to distinguish between the true disciple and the false. He's not advocating for works or for an assurance based on our righteousness. It's just that when a person believes in the grace of God, that's the sort of stuff that comes out. So go back again to the question I asked you towards the beginning of today's message. How have you grown in the past year? Or for that matter, the past five? Assess once again why you may be stagnant in your growth. Consider once again where you fall short of the positive expressions of righteousness that Jesus demands. And ask yourself, why don't I love like that? There could be many different answers to that question, but consider this. Might it be because you're not daily rooted in the grace of God? That may be a factor. It could be a reason why. If so, then it raises the question, how do I stay rooted in the grace of God? And that's a question we don't have time to answer right now, but we'll discuss it tonight at 6 o'clock. So if you're struggling in this area, I'd encourage you to come back for that discussion tonight. In the meantime, let's close by asking God to help us in our obedience by giving us a clear vision of His grace. Let's pray.